I decided tonight that I wanted to go back to the Mahasatipatthana Sutta that I began with almost a week ago now. And I remember saying to you when I uh, talked about it the last time, I said it has everything in it. And it really does have everything in it. And I said we could just talk about the sutta the whole time for the one month. And uh, I talked the other night about uh, the four foundations of mindfulness. Remember that Sally said the other night that the Buddha had a love for numbers and lists. So in that very particular sutta, there are the four foundations of mindfulness and the four noble truths and the four positions in which we can pay attention to the body, sitting, walking, lying, standing, and the five hindrances that James spoke about the other night, and the five aggregates, and the six internal sense bases, and six external sense bases, and the seven factors of enlightenment, and the eightfold path. Every time I think about that, I think I I have an impulse to burst into a partridge in a pear tree. And the nine cemetery reflections. And the nine cemetery contemplations, I realize we never talk about. We don't give talks about them. I think we skip over that part uh, partly because we don't live in a charnel ground culture. And it has a description of contemplating a charnel ground where bodies are burned after they're born. So it's not a description that that we're used to. We don't probably connect with that image. But mostly I think it's because it's hard to read. In a little bit I'll read some of it to you. And I realized when I was preparing for this talk tonight that uh, it's, I, I, I realized it would be hard to read aloud. The imagery is very stark. Because I think it's really, even if the imagery wasn't stark, it's very hard to get it about impermanence on that level. Fundamentally, how impermanent all things are, that our lives will all end as everyone else's throughout all time has. It's also hard to talk about. I decided to do this talk the other day just in a moment. And the moment was a moment where Gil was giving the instructions for the day and talking about mindfulness of breathing. And he used the expression, savor the breath. And when he said that, I thought in the next moment I had all of these thoughts. In a flash, I thought, savor the breath because we have only a limited number because I remembered a line that's a very important line from the Buddha's teaching where he said, everything that is dear to us causes pain. And the relationship that I've had to teaching that line over the years, I thought about that. I thought about the fact that we don't have charnel grounds, but we do have cemeteries. And I thought about my relationship to cemeteries and the fact that I like them a lot. And I have certain experiences in cemeteries that I want to tell you about because they were really important learning experiences for me. 
And I want to tell you about a story about a lie, an untruthfulness that lived in my family for a long time that resolved itself in a cemetery. I want to tell you about cemeteries in France. I want to tell you a line in the Dhammapada about impermanence. And I want to tell you a story that someone in Barry told me several years ago. And I realized that all in one moment when Gil said, savor the (laughs) breath. And I decided I need to do that talk on the cemetery considerations, contemplations. And then I thought, well, I have to have a reason. I have to say this is a something or other talk, a a dukkha talk, or an anicca talk, or an anatta talk. And I realized it is all of those. It is about the impermanence of things. It is about the suffering that accrues, both when we lose things that are dear, and when we don't understand that losing is inevitable. We don't really have a deep understanding of that. And when we don't understand really um, the way that things come together, it's really uh, an anatataka, without self-talk, but how things come together according to conditions and then stay together for a while and then aren't. The, the uh, way that things come together, the arising of things and the passing away of things in a lawful way. So I thought, well, that makes complete sense that it should be an Anicca Dukkha talk because everything is, because those are fundamentally the characteristics of all experience. They're fundamentally what we're here to see. They constitute, as we understand them more and more fully, what we recognize as wisdom, and that wisdom that leads to compassion which for me is the point of practice, really. So I think that the reflections, the cemetery reflections, in fact, condition uh, as well a sense of dedication to being present in life. It is, after all, finite. I'll read you a little bit from the cemetery contemplations. And again, monks, if a monk sees a body one day dead, or two days dead, or three days dead, swollen, blue, and festering, discarded in the charnel ground, then he applies this perception to his own body. Thus, truly, this body of mine, too, is of the same nature. It will become like that and will not escape from it. And again, if a monk sees a body discarded in the charnel ground being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, herons, dogs, leopards, tigers, jackals, or by various kinds of worms, then he applies this perception to his own body. Truly, this body of mine, too, is of the same nature. It will become like that and will not escape from it. And again, monks, if a a monk sees a body discarded in the charnel grounds, reduced to a skeleton, held together by tendons, and on in the same way. Reduced to a skeleton, held together by tendons, without flesh and blood. And again, realizing, truly this body of mine is of the same nature, it will become like that, will not escape from it. And then, if a monk sees a body discarded in the charnel grounds, reduced to loose bones, scattered in all directions, 
here bones of the hand, there bones of the foot, shin bones, thigh bones, pelvis, spine, and skull. And then bones reduced to a shell-like color and reduced bones, more than a year old, lying in a heap and reduced, crumbling to dust. Then he applies this perception to his own body. Thus, truly, this body of mine is of the same nature. It will become like that. It will not escape from it. Then he dwells, practicing body contemplation on the body internally or externally, both internally and externally. He dwells contemplating origination factors in the body, or he dwells contemplating dissolution factors in the body, or he dwells contemplating both origination and dissolution factors in the body. Indeed, monks, a monk dwells practicing body contemplation of the body, independent he dwells, clinging to nothing in the world. That expression, clinging to nothing in the world, means not being distracted from this moment. This is the only moment ever that we're alive now. So I want to go back to the list of the realizations that I had when Gil said, savor the moment. And I thought, savor the moment, because we have a limited number. And I thought about the ways that sometimes people say, especially when someone has a grave illness, they say, his days are numbered, or her days are numbered. All of our days are numbered. We just don't know what the number is. And we imagine that it's a big number. So I thought to myself, I wonder how many breaths have a certain number of heartbeats. And so I took a guess. I thought, I bet I get three billion breaths in a life. That seemed like a reasonable amount. And then I, uh, doesn't that seem right, three billion? So I, <laughs> I, uh, I uh, decided that I breathe 10 breaths to a minute, maybe, sometimes slower, but 10 seemed reasonable. 10 breaths to a minute, and I multiplied out 10 <laughs> times 60, that's how many in an hour, times 24 in a day, times 365 days, times um, 70 years. Because it says three score and 10 is what we're allotted, and some of us get more and some of us get less. So that comes out, in fact, I had thought three billion. It comes out to 367 million, 920 breaths. That doesn't seem like so much, actually. <laughs> Less than what I imagined. You know, and that, that's actually counting on three score and ten, good health till then. You don't know. You know, when we think about uh, the kinds of things that happened, the earthquake in India two weeks ago, 20,000 people died all of a sudden. Didn't matter their state of health. Didn't matter how good care they took care of themselves. Didn't matter if they were happy or sad or old and on the brink of dying or had just gotten married the day before or just gotten born the day before. Didn't matter. We don't know, ever. When you think about that, it's so astounding. We live as if we're sure and that we have lots of time. 
I think sometimes, I, 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 I'm sure nobody here uses that expression, but that it just so jars my ear when someone will say, uh, my plane was delayed and I had three hours to kill in the Denver airport. We haven't a moment to lose. It just is so clear to me. So I thought about that, the earthquake in India, and I thought about that awareness that it's very fragile life. I was in an airport just a couple of weeks ago. I was watching a young couple. The plane, the plane was delayed a couple of times, and they were waiting. And they had two young babies, and it's hard to stay in a boarding lounge with two young babies over time. And they did great. They were just so nice with those babies, and I was admiring them so much, not getting out of patience with the toddler, and just carrying on in the nicest way, and busy with family stuff, you know, they, uh, talking to each other, taking care of their children, and took up a lot of time, and changing and feeding and feeding and changing. And then it was time to get on the plane, and they got on right in front of me, and uh, uh, carrying all these diaper bags and over-the-shoulder bags, and a car seat with the baby and a stroller and the toddler walking along. And just as the, the woman right in front of me folded up her stroller and gave it to the baggage handler, she's holding this little girl by the hand, just as she's about to step into the plane, she said to no one, just into the air, I heard her, I was right behind her, she paused and she said, okay, God, get us there safe. And I was so touched by it that, uh, first of all, I make much more elaborate incantations about that. <laughs> and, it's, and it's not for a moment that I imagine that my incantations are holding up my plane more than the person, anybody else's plane, or that by the incantation, the merit of it, I am meriting having my plane held up. It's just a way of counteracting the fact that I don't like to fly, and it keeps me comfortable to do that. But I liked it so much that she had a sense of, this is an awesome moment, I'm getting onto a plane. And my sense is that every single moment is an awesome moment, you know, not just getting on the plane. We think of it when we get on the plane, this plane is going to fly, but um, really, we cross the street, you don't know. I, I saw, I heard a traffic accident in New York a few weeks ago. I hadn't ever had that before, where I was walking down Amsterdam Avenue, and a block away I heard a screech of brakes and a thud. A person got hit. It was the most amazing thing. To feel it, to hear what happened. And everybody stopped. I think the person did not die. You could tell it was night, but you could tell that there was the kind of activity around it. That I hope that person did not die. Everyone in New York has a cell phone, so immediately people called 911. And the emergency vehicles came. But I was thinking to myself, that person, I was in the best mood where I was going to spend the evening, have dinner, I was in a good mood. That person was probably in a good mood going someplace too. And you don't know. You don't know. It just struck me. We just don't ever know. If we knew, I was thinking about, a uh, guy mentioned the other night about uh, some uh, Dharma talks with uh, Mary Oliver poems and other ones with suttas. So having read the uh, cemetery contemplations, I would like to remind you of the Mary Oliver line <laughs> of uh, 
what will we do with this one wild and precious life? That's very serious dharma. What will we? It's one. This life is just one of them. And we don't know how long. And what are we going to do with it? I remember, uh, it has to be early 70s now, because it was before Elizabeth Kubler-Ross became quite well known for talking about talking about, talking about death and dying, of formerly a topic that we didn't talk about so much. And Charlie Garfield, who had begun the Shanti Project, which was a project of working with uh, people getting ready to die in San Francisco, came to talk at the College of Marin where I was teaching. And so he gave a talk, and there were a group of people in the room, and he began his talk by saying, uh, who here is going to die someday? And everybody just sat there for a while. And then, by and by, people looked around because they didn't want to put up their hand before anybody else put up their hand. And then, you know, finally, people put up their hand, but there was a, a big hesitation about doing it. Like they had to reflect about is that going to happen someday? We don't like to admit it, it's going to happen. So I thought about the phrase, everything that is dear to us causes pain. I thought about when I, uh, uh, I used to teach uh, uh, every once in a while the uh, introductory world religions class at Dominican College and uh, teach about Buddhism as well as whatever else I thought about. And uh, I hesitated about saying, that particular teaching of the Buddha, everything that is dear to us causes pain. I hesitated even to say the first noble truth about suffering. The people in that class were, by and large, 18 years old, and they'd grown up in Marin County, and they had devoted Catholic families, and they hadn't known a lot of personal suffering for the most part. And I didn't like to bring them bad news. And I didn't want them to think that Buddhism was a grim religion. I felt protective of Buddhism, and I also felt protective of them. I didn't really feel like breaking the news to them if they hadn't noticed yet. And in fact, it was hard to talk to them about suffering. They hadn't known much. I had to think of examples. Did you ever love somebody that they didn't love you back? Yes, they got that. You know, it was, wasn't really about the huge losses that we need to face in our lives. So I'll tell you a cemetery story two cemetery stories, three. I really have always liked cemeteries. I especially like old cemeteries. There's a cemetery on the road between uh, the Insight Meditation Society on Pleasant Street in Barrie and downtown Barrie. There was a cemetery, with. it's an old cemetery. There's a cemetery next to the retreat center in Toledo, Washington, where I did my first two weeks retreat. And I got there early on the day that I came to practice, and I was probably a little bit anxious about the whole thing. And I went to have a walk, and I walked in the cemetery. And like all old cemeteries, um, it had a lot of baby graves, because a lot of babies died. So it had a lot of little baby graves. And then it had a lot of young children graves because people died of diphtheria and whooping cough. 
cough, probably rheumatic fever before antibiotics. And then there was a big space in age, and then they had a lot of graves of young women, probably died in childbirth, women in their early 20s. And then it seemed like there weren't graves until people got really old, like if you made it through that, and you got to be really old, people lived to be 80s. Except for the people who died in wars. Young men died in wars, and you could see they were 18 or 21. And they often said heroic things on the gravestones, like patriotic things, died for the sake of their country. And I felt terrible about thinking about the wars that human beings had collaborated in bringing about so that this young son or young father or young husband needed to die. And I cried a lot. And uh, I looked at all those young women who died in childbirth and thought about the pain of the children they left behind or the husbands they left behind. I cried about that. And they probably had parents as well. And I, I, I had a terrible headache, by the way, from the crying. And, and I lamented that I had gone into that cemetery to begin with. As I started that retreat with a terrible headache. But I don't think that the crying was a mistake. I actually think it may have been the biggest insight of the, maybe the whole retreat. That it's just tremendously painful to be in a life. Everything that is dear to us causes pain. And we want things to be dear to us. We choose people to be dear to us. We enter into relationships and value our relationships because they are dear to us. Of course, we, we practice hopeful that, that we will maybe rest in the faith that when we are most called upon to deal with the loss of what's most dear to us, we'll be able to do that. Not that we won't be terribly sad or grieve or cry, but that we'll know that this is what happens. This is what happens. Having taken birth, it is what happens. And think about um, three score and ten. We don't know. When I was um, an adolescent, I, um, I used to memorize poetry a lot. I liked to do that. And I uh, memorized a poem by A. E. Hausman called The Cherry Tree. And the point of the poem is that life is so short that uh, the cherry tree in the spring in bloom is so beautiful, but we should go in the winter as well and see it covered with snow. But the line of the poem that most struck me is, um, it said, um, Now of my threescore years and ten, twenty will not come again, and take from seventy springs a score. It only leaves me fifty more. And I thought at the time, because I was quite young, I wasn't yet twenty, I thought about getting to be twenty, but seventy, wow. That was a million years from then. Couldn't imagine it. But all of a sudden, it's right there ahead of me. 
And what's more, it took a minute to get here. And what's more, all of the events and all of the things that happened have disappeared. There's nothing left. Memories. James said the other night, you can't look around over your shoulder and see the past. It's not there. You can look in a photo album, but often I have the feeling when I look in a photo album, I feel very dear about the people who are there, but they don't feel like me. I know who they are, and I know the story around that picture. I can tell about it, but it doesn't feel like me, and it doesn't feel doesn't feel like but a minute since that happened. And I thought the other day someone was talking about what would we do if our house was on fire? I know some folks whose house burned down and we talked about um, uh, what, would the, what would be the worst thing to lose? Well, if people worry about they lose their computer and everything that's in there. And people said, well, the worst thing is the photographs because they're not replaceable. I have a whole room in my house um, that's really covered with framed photographs of my whole family at different ages as they grew up, and my parents and my parents' parents, and I love that room. I like to take people into it and show them my whole family. And I realized, just thinking about it today, that um, my great-grandparents are in one of those pictures. And I love to show people, say, look, these are my great-grandparents. But I don't know a thing about them, other than that he had a red beard. And I was kind of hoping one of my children would have red hair, and nobody did. But I don't know what his temperament was like, or what he thought about. Uh, I don't know anything about my great-grandmother. One thing I know about my great-grandmother. but Not a lot. I think to myself, my great-grandchildren, if my house doesn't burn down, will inherit all of these pictures sometime, but they won't know anything about these people. They'll just be folks, you know. Maybe the most proximal to them they'll know. My grandchildren, they'll know them because they'll be their parents, but not more than that. So here's a cemetery story more recently. That was the Toledo, Washington cemetery story. This is the Queens, New York cemetery story. A few years ago, I was in New York with my husband, staying in Manhattan, and I really suddenly wanted to go to Queens. My mother is buried in a cemetery in Queens, and for various reasons, it's complicated to go to Queens, and my mother died a very long time ago. I just decided, I, and I hadn't been in decades, I decided I wanted to go and see my mother's grave. So we went out to Queens, and it's complicated to get there. And um, you come into this, and Queens was at the time, I guess, a place, it was the outer boroughs at the time, and um, there were big cemeteries there, contiguous one after another. Um, in the particular Jewish cemetery where uh, all, all my relatives are buried, they are buried in, um, in areas that, that when, when the immigrants came to this country, it, from Europe in the late uh, 19, uh, 1800s, beginning 1900s, they would join a burial society because one of their worries was that they'd need to get buried and they would like to get buried with people from their community. 
So you would see the people from Kiev in this burial, in, 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 in this fenced-in area, and the people from Krakow in this particular area. So I knew uh, what burial society my father's father had joined. I knew that my father's father and mother were buried there, and that my mother, not being of that family but having married into it, would be buried there. So we came to the cemetery and checked in at the administration office, and they said, oh yes, that particular society is way over there. They showed you on a map, and it was quite a long walk to get up there, and you have to find the name on the, on the plate, on the iron gate, to get into that particular area. And people got buried not by family plot. They got buried in order of dying. So you just got, not with your folks, but your community of folks, but just where you were. And I think they didn't count on the people in the burial society having progeny and having more progeny because they had to, after a while, make the graves very close together. I think they were moving out, running out of space and imagining that they had to get them closer and closer together. So I was trying to find my mother's grave and finding myself walking on people's graves and I felt uncomfortable about that. Meantime, it had taken a long time to get to Queens and um, it was in the fall of the year, so the sun was beginning to really start to move towards setting. And it was a gray day to begin with, and it started to rain. And suddenly, I said, let's go home. I can't do this. And uh, my husband said, no, no, let's keep on. We came so far. That's his nature very much. And so we went a little bit more, and I'm tripping over graves that haven't been cared for and feeling bad about that. And suddenly I said, look, let's go home. Any of these people could have been my mother. Let's just pretend that this is it, and we're here. (laughs) And the truth is, in that moment, I felt like any of those people could have been my mother. And it was more than the tribal connection to them, or the, 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 the region connection to them. Any of them could have been my mother. Really, my mother existed at that point in my memory. These are just bones, old bones. My mother is dead more than 40 years. Doesn't matter which gravestone I stop at or which one I commemorate by putting a stone on it so someone knows I visited. It doesn't matter at all. And I just knew that. And then we found the grave. So I marked it and said whatever prayer I was going to say. And we began to walk back towards the exit, towards the administration office. And I looked out, and the cemetery is very vast, and it's curved hills, and they're hills up and down with gravestones, something like when you drive down uh, Highway 280 and you pass the Presidio, there's a cemetery there. You see just waves of gravestones. And in this case, there was nothing that you could see but waves of gravestones. From where I was at one point, in all the directions, going up all the hills, were waves of gravestones. And I looked around, and I had a sudden realization that this is all a cemetery of bones, and the whole world, the whole globe, is a global cemetery of bones, really the bones of every living thing, forever and ever. 
are interred and have become dust, we mark off and delineate this is a cemetery, but the whole world is a cemetery for what's come and gone. We could stop anywhere and make the same prayers that we make in cemeteries where they're marked. We could stop anywhere and say this is consecrated ground. People who lived are here. So there's one more cemetery story. We continued out, and we were coming to the gate, passing that same administration building, and on the way it was a long walk. And I told my husband the story that just telling him about a memory I had, I said, you know, this is an odd memory in my mind. My mother died when I was in my early 20s, and uh, sometime after that, I couldn't remember why I didn't talk to her more about it while she was alive. I remember that she had mentioned to me that she had more than one sister. For all of my life, I grew up knowing my mother and my Aunt Miriam, my very Aunt Miriam, who died one month ago now, my mother's younger sister by eight years. So all of my life, I had grown up thinking of my grandparents as having these two children and them growing up. I had no mention of anyone else. I never saw a, saw a photo of anybody else. I never heard about anybody else. But I had a recollection after my mother died that she had mentioned to me one time that she'd had a sister in between herself and my aunt's birth. I thought maybe I dreamt that. So this is going back now two decades. I asked my grandfather, who was a very, very close friend of mine, lived with me for some period of time when he was old in his 90s. I loved him a lot. He loved me a lot. We had a very open and really intimate relationship in terms of sharing and talking. And I said to him one time, listen, I heard from my mother that uh, there were really three daughters, not two. And he said, no, no, that's not true. There were just two. No, it's not true. So I let it go. And then he died some years later. Some years after that, I asked my aunt. And I said, listen, I heard that there was, my, I'm sure, maybe I don't remember right, but I'm sure my mother mentioned to me that there was another daughter. I said, no, no, where did you hear that? That's not true. Okay. Let it go. And as we were walking through the cemetery, I told my husband that whole story, and he said, well, why don't you go in and check? Here we are. You know, it's going to be another 40 years till we come to Queens. You might as well go now. <laughs> so I went in, and, uh, and I, what I remembered from my mother in the, distinct, in the indistinct memory of my, of my childhood was that she had said that there was another child and that that child had died at about six years old. My mother died young of the sequelae of rheumatic fever. Her mother had had a heart condition as a result of rheumatic fever. And my recollection is that they had had a sister that died of rheumatic fever. So we went back into the administration. I remembered, I knew that this child, if there was one, would have been buried in my maternal grandfather's section of the cemetery, yet another one. 
And, uh, but I knew the name of his burial society, so I said it. And they looked it up in a computer, and I said my grandfather's last name. And they said, oh yes, we have people here buried with that last name. What was uh, this person's first name? And I didn't know. And I said, I think her name was Sylvia. And they said, there is one here. And she died on May 21st, 1921. And she was six years old. My Aunt Miriam was born on October 31st, 1919. She would have been two. So they said, you probably won't find our gravestone. They mostly buried young children with limestone markers, and they uh, wash away, and you know, it's, it's 75 years, and you won't be able to read the gravestone. Don't even bother. And the children were buried in one corner of the whole cemetery plot for that community. And they said, you'll just see little white limestone graves, and probably you won't find it. But my husband said, <laughs> we're here, let's go look. He's very good, so we went all the way back. We found this whole other cemetery, and, and here are the graves, and here's a clump of limestone graves, and you can't read anything on them. I said, let's go home. Now it's really getting dark, and it's misty, and I'm feeling very emotionally overwhelmed. He said, no, no, look, there's another clump up there of children's graves, let's go. And I have to come through the thickets and go through and climb through all those weeds. And I climb through and there's another whole bunch of children's graves and not possible to uh, read there, read the name of the child. And I said, let's go home. And suddenly he said, look at this. And there was, in fact, a marble headstone, quite a reasonable sized marble headstone, and it said the name of the child, and it said, um, it said her Hebrew name, the daughter of my grandfather. So I know that it's my Aunt Sylvia, and I got, you can't imagine, I was quite upset, and my husband was quite taken with surprise about how upset I was. And, and it was a long time ago, and I didn't know my Aunt Sylvia. And I said, you know, it's not about that she died. It's about that they lied. And it's about that my grandfather lied to me, and he didn't tell me. And I thought we had such a good relationship. So it's not about her death. It's about the death of my sense of our relationship. I trusted that so much. And so we left there and went back to Manhattan and sometime later came back to California. And sometime later I called my aunt and we talked about, as we often did, I was in very close communication with my aunt. I talked to her every week for the last many years. And uh, by and by in the conversation I said, you know, Miriam, when I was in New York I went to the cemetery and um, I did find the grave. I know there was a sister. And she said, well, okay. And I said, I was very upset because um, I'm very upset to find that my grandfather lied to me. And she said, he didn't lie. 
he forgot. I said, Miriam, that's not possible. People don't forget when something like that happens. She said, yes, they do. If it's too terrible, they put it out of their mind. And they put it out of their mind so long that they forget. It's the only way they know to do it. I've thought about that a lot since there was never a mention of this child, nor her name, nor a photo. She was six years old. How could you not have a photo of a child that was six years old? I have a very good friend whose brother died when he was six years old, probably 60 years ago. There is no photo of her brother left anywhere. When she was a child, once, she said, I was in my parents' room, as children do when their parents aren't home, go through all their drawers. She said, I found a picture of my brother. And she'd known about him. She was born after his death. She said, there was one. And I left it in my mother's drawer. And when my parents weren't home, I went in and looked at it. But I never told my parents I saw it. People can't talk about what they can't manage to hold in their heart. They put it out. They forget it. I asked my aunt if she, uh, in that conversation, I said, did you remember? She said, well, she said, here's the truth. My earliest memory of my whole life is uh, of uh, playing in a room on the floor with the sun coming in. You know this is a real memory because the, the description of the texture of it. I was playing on the floor and the sun was coming in on the floor and my mother was sitting near me on a chair. And uh, I remember that my mother was crying and I got frightened and I started to cry. And my mother picked me up and said, don't cry. And she said, I never saw my mother crying again. It's a terrible thing to not be able to talk about it, not be able to say, this is my pain, not be able to have somehow the wherewithal to make it mentionable. It is true. Everything that is dear to us causes pain, and we lose things. And somehow I think this endeavor is to help us each to find that place in our heart where we can make a space to somehow hold it. Not not be sad about it, but hold it with some sort of wisdom and compassion, not only for ourselves, but for every single other living being. Everybody has to do it. Nobody gets out any other way. I want to tell you about the cemeteries in France. Um, we, we've bicycled in France quite a lot, my husband and I. We like to bicycle and um, take bicycles and go to France and ride between towns. And we stop at all the cemeteries that we pass because I like to look in them. And they have a different arrangement there than here, uh, at least the ones that I've been looking at, they do have family plots. Um, 
you'll see a whole plot with a with a, a kind of monument in the middle of it, and it'll have the name of the family in it. And it'll say something like uh, "Family Dupay" or "Family Chirac" or whatever, and um, not individual graves. And perhaps people's ashes are buried, placed in that. Perhaps it's a a repository of ashes, or perhaps the ashes are buried in that plot. So you don't know where individual people's ashes or are, but you know what family is there. And when people die, they must have some ceremony at graveside, and people bring, instead of flowers, or sometimes in addition to flowers, a kind of a sign that they pick up in, that they buy in... Um, funerary supply stores where uh, it's kind of like a plaque on a little stand and you put it on top of this monument. And it doesn't say the name of the person who dies. It died. It said devoted aunt or beloved sister or a faithful wife or my uncle. And uh, it doesn't say anybody's name. And I thought about that. I thought I had this aberrant thought about if you'd come and take these and put them on your grave because it doesn't have a name on it. And I wondered if there was much of a problem in France with people taking the markers off this grave and putting them on other graves. I also, it's a silly thought. I, I, I had that thought. I asked the person in the funerary supply store. I went in to talk to them about it, actually. <laughs> Not to talk about that, but to talk about the custom of marking graves that way. Because it interested me a lot that you didn't put the person's name. Because I thought to myself, the name does not matter. The relationship matters. Beloved wife, dear mother, good friend. That's what mattered. It doesn't matter what the names is. The names all get lost in the shuffle. After a while, it's dust. But the relationship is what really matters. I thought it's wonderful to mark graves with relationships, not with names. And when people come by, suppose it said a name, Emile Dupre. I wouldn't know anything about him. But I know that he was somebody's father and somebody's uncle and somebody's friend and somebody's husband that he mattered to people. There's a line in the Dhammapada that says, anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. It's probably my favorite line in the Dhammapada. Anyone who recognizes impermanence, who gets it, who understands it, ceases to be contentious. And I think to myself, what might that mean? on the level of relationship, I think it means we get it. When we get it, that there's a limited amount of time in which to cherish. We're not contentious. We don't have feuds that go on or grudges that linger. We get upset with people because we're human beings. Who doesn't get upset? We get annoyed. But getting annoyed is a natural response of the nervous system. Staying annoyed, staying angry, 
staying out of relationship is a mistake. It comes from not seeing clearly. We have a choice in any moment to be connected with love or separated. can either do it in this moment or not do it in this moment. And if we don't do it in this moment, we don't get this moment to do it again in. Get sometimes, really when we don't see that, so you hurt me or you wounded me, so now I'll hurt you back. It doesn't help. It might be a psychological reason for us to do it, but I think when we have enough awareness of what's really the truth, we stop doing it. I think what that means on the level of a relationship to life, not just a relationship to someone else, is we don't get mad at life either, or resent it. We get whatever we get. Don't always feel pleased about it. We say, I don't deserve this, whatever happened in life. Really means that we don't have an understanding of karma. Nobody deserves it. People get what is the lawful consequence of all of the circumstances and causes and conditions that have come in, come to fruition in that moment. This is what I got. Is really a deep understanding of karma. There is never any other time than now to relate with love and kindness and compassion, to appreciate being alive. So I'll tell you one more story. This is a story that someone told me in Barry a few years ago. It's a person about my age, and uh, he said uh, he and his wife had had a uh, ski condominium in one of the ski resort areas, kind of condominium where you uh, have a timeshare, so you have a week a year, and you're always there in that same week. And he said, we've been there that same week for years. And uh, there was another couple in the condominium, in the apartment right next to them, in that same condominium complex. said, for years, they were there as well. And they would see them. You recognize them after a few years. Everybody's always in their same week. They'd wave at each other and wave back, hello, pleasantries. Everyone went into their particular condominium unit. He said, just last year, We both arrived home after a day of skiing, and the folks next door said, you know, uh, we were just about to uh, have dinner. If you've got some dinner, why don't you bring yours over and we'll have dinner together. So so we took our dinner over, four of us had a really lovely, pleasant evening. We shared all our food together. We really got to know these folks in in a way that we hadn't for all these years of just hello. Really, we're glad that we did it. And then we went back, and we went to bed, he told me. He said, in the middle of the night, there was terrible screaming from the uh, apartment next door and banging on the wall, and he leaped out of bed and ran next door, and the man in this couple next door had had a heart attack and had fallen to the floor and was clearly dead. And he said, we called 911, and 911 came, but it, it was just, he was really, he was dead. He said, so my wife and I stayed there, and we, you know, were supportive as we could be and help the woman call her family. And he said it was most of the night next door, and he said when we got back into our own place, 
<coughs> said it was nearly dawn. And uh, he said, so I fixed myself a cup of coffee, and uh, I sat down by the window, and I watched the sun come up. And I realized that um, I was seeing the sun come up again. And uh, Paul next door wasn't seeing the sun come up that morning. And he said, I never saw the sun come up like I saw it come up that morning. And I really tasted that coffee, and I savored it like I don't usually. And I savored the coffee, and I savored the sun coming up, and I realized I was alive and I could still breathe, and I felt myself breathing. So when Gil said, savor the breath, I thought all those things in between. And I wanted to tell them to you. And I want to tell you that when I talk to people about their meditation practice at home, and people sometimes say to me, you know, I I, I want to get up in the morning and sit on my pillow or sit on my chair, but I just don't do it. You know, I always find something else to do. boring and I just get up and you know go to the bathroom and then sit down and close my eyes again doesn't do anything for me lots of people I've said get up in the morning I said what do you do then I said well they say I fix tea or I fix coffee I say great get up do all the bathroom stuff fix the tea fix the coffee and go sit down by the window with the tea or the coffee in your hands and hold it and see that it's warm you can still feel that it's warm. And look out the window and see where it is in terms of getting light or almost light or just light. And smell whatever it is that you have in your hands. And sip it and taste it. And then put it down a little bit and close your eyes and feel yourself breathing. Then you can open your eyes and have some more tea and then close your eyes and feel yourself breathing. Say, really? I can meditate like that at home? With tea, I can meditate? <laughs> well, you can meditate with tea. Just paying attention. Paying attention now to being alive in this moment. This is the only life that we're going to have as this life. This is the only day we're going to have as today. This is the only now we're only going to have, ever going to have is now. This breath that we're taking now is the only time we'll take this breath. Don't miss it. Don't miss now. Let's just sit. Thank you.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 8, 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.